0: Hello, and welcome to Mystic Dog Mama, the podcast for soul-led dog mamas, where you'll discover how to best nourish your dog and yourself, mind, body, and soul. I'm your host, Dr. Alexia Meller i am so excited to introduce you to this week's guest in fact our very first guest david ian Howe. to give you a bit of a background david is an anthropologist and registered archaeologist science communicator as well as a fantastic content creator artist comedian and presenter extraordinaire who has had a lifelong love of dogs His TED-Ed video on the history of dogs has had over 3 million views on YouTube. David also hosts and curates the Instagram account Ethnosynology, which, if you're not familiar with that term, is the study of dogs within past and present human societies. I was first introduced to David's work by a friend of mine in my canine nutrition class who is an absolute queen of going down research rabbit holes, and as a result, the go-to for pretty much any resource you could ask for. Stacy, you know I'm talking about you. She shared an absolute gem of a video, which just happened to be David's pandemic-era presentation on the evolution of dogs. He filmed it in his living room, and it's the perfect combination of humor, fun facts, and provocative questions. Plus, he's literally sitting next to his TV on a stool, wearing a jacket and shorts. I mean, it's hilarious and so good. I've left a link to it in the show notes just in case you want to check it out too. I highly encourage you to. So when I was mapping out the kinds of conversations I wanted to have in this first season of Mystic Dog Mama. I thought it was only fitting to kick it off by looking at where dogs have come from. Their cousins, the gray wolf. In this chat, David takes us on a journey of how the wolf basically won the game of evolution, embedding itself in our mythologies, our homes, and our hearts in the form of the dog. He reminds us that dogs co-evolved with humans, meaning that both species have intimately shaped one another's development. It's impossible to talk about the path that we humans have taken without talking about dogs, which was something I honestly hadn't quite thought of in that way. We also talk about our personal experiences with our own dogs, including some of the challenges that come with trying to help a cousin of the wolf to live in a human-designed world. David is a phenomenal guest, and I know you're going to love hearing his perspectives on all things dogs. During our chat, we covered so much ground that I've actually divided it into two episodes. So make sure you check out part two, which you'll find in episode three. How does taking the perspective of the dog as a next-generation wolf change the way you think about caring for your dog? Or the role your dog plays? Do you agree with David's perspective on this? It's my hope that this might spark some interesting conversations, so please reach out on Instagram at mysticdogmama, to let me know your thoughts. And before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode is supported by Aspirationary, which, in full transparency, is another project of mine where we create books, notebooks, and stationery to help you become all you aspire to be. Right now, we are featuring our moon magic and shadow work journals and workbooks where you can explore your personal connection to the moon cycle as well as how the moon is inviting you to unravel the stories, narratives, and mythologies that you may be consciously and unconsciously living your life by. They are wonderful tools to gently support you in creating new mythologies and dreaming up the life you want to lead. You can check them out on our Aspirationary Instagram account, and that's spelled A-S-P-I-R- A-T-I-O-N-E-R-Y. I'll leave the link in the show notes below. On that note, let's dive in. So David, thank you so much for joining me on the Mystic Mystic Dog Mama podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yay. I first came across your work through a friend of mine who um, were in the canine nutrition circle. And the module that we were actually studying for a course was all about canine evolution and looking at where have dogs come from and does that give us any kind of insight into what they should be eating now? What would their optimal diet be? And she sent me the video of you doing your presentation during the pandemic, I believe. So it was like a living room presentation,
1: <laughs> I Forgot which about was, that one.
0: Yeah, which was just amazing. I was like, this is awesome. And I had, never really thought about in the way that you presented it the way in which dogs and humans Mm co-evolved and that kind of intricate relationship and so i just wondered if you could talk to me a little bit about like how you got into that and some of your views on that idea of the co-evolution
1: yeah um i guess i'll start with the the first question um i got into it i'm an archaeologist um and in the States, you do anthropology is like the degree. Archaeology is part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that includes bioanth, linguistics, archaeology, and cultural anthropology. And just always found history fascinating. I went to school originally for history. Um, but there was a, I think it was like a, my 101 class for archaeology. There was a picture of the the woman in the Levant, like buried with the puppy. And I thought. Yeah. That was really cool. And I just didn't think about dogs existing that long. And, uh, my aunt was a vet, always grew up around dogs. Uh, we always had dogs and I just, we had just gotten a new family dog at the time when I was in college too. So I was just like fascinated by like raising a dog. Um, yeah. And just realized you could combine the two. And then I went to grad school to do more archeology, span but to focus on that, um, and I ended up doing more about stone tools than I did dogs. But um, all of my like research papers and just fun research was on dogs. Uh, and to bring it back to the, the other question, I've recently started to think of it more so as, because as an anthropologist, I look everything through kind of an evolutionary or like ecological lens, uh, more so than like a historical. Mm-hmm. And I would say to study like dogs and understand modern dogs, it's more so fascinating to think of it as the evolution of wolves more so than it is the domestication of dogs. Uh, right. And that's where I would go with it. Yeah. Right.
0: So are you currently doing field work?
1: Uh, yes and no. I, uh, I work for myself. I do like full-time content creation. Um, and then like I take contract gigs with other archaeology companies. Uh, so currently I just finished writing a, a pamphlet for a museum, so that was like my contract work. Oh, um, yeah, thanks. I was on like the Atlantic slave trade and rice farming in South Carolina. It was rough. It was like oh, wow. hard to write for a while. but um, when I'm not doing that, it was, you know, I go do field work and most of archaeology in the United States, and I believe in the UK too, is uh, contract archaeology where, if mcdonald's or walmart buys a plot of land um you have to send in zoologists archaeologists and geologists to check the land um right. and if you find something then we have to dig it out yeah that's how, that's how that goes so yeah i do do that
0: uh, kind of a funny side note around that stuff my dad is an engineer a mechanical engineer who's kind of focus was mostly on like interrail systems and subway systems and he and his company got contracted to help out in Athens as they were preparing for the Olympic games in 2000 and he said the project just took absolutely forever because they would constantly be coming across something obviously as they're like digging under ruins you know coming across yeah. something else and having to call in the archaeologists like we found something again we found something again we found something again
1: where was it <laughs>
0: in athens greece
1: oh athens greece okay yeah, yeah. i imagine there's there's tons
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely and it was kind of the running joke like if it was a greek ruin like come and protect it and if it's roman well
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, it's kind of how like i mean not that it goes that way here it's just <laughs> everything here like native americans lived everywhere so there's always going to be stone flakes or bones or some kind of Item, but especially out east where it was heavily, you know, I guess colonized. Like a lot of that is gone because the historic layers are now like bricks and like early revolutionary things like that. So it's just it's interesting. I'm out in Wyoming, which didn't get populated by Europeans until like 171800s. So like you can see everything, and it just sits on the surface. Yeah, it's archaeology is cool, but a lot of people don't think about how much, uh, I guess the word would be like archaeology. It's a resource, cultural resources, just like oil and gas or natural resources. And like the federal government views it the same way. It's right. Cool. Right. Yeah.
0: That is an interesting way to look at it. I never would have thought it, thought of it in that context.
1: Yeah. Like your, your tax money goes to, at least on federal land, like protecting and excavating archaeological sites when you come across them. So, yeah. Oh, um, okay. a lot of that job can be very boring when you're in the middle of the desert looking for one little projectile point. Um, but you know, it's important work. (laughs) It is important work. It is important work. So
0: in, in your research, you know, kind of focusing around dogs and how, I guess, you know, more broadly, like you were saying, the kind of evolution of wolves and how that eventually came into being with the dogs. Like what is something that's really surprised you that you've discovered?
1: The most surprising thing would be the uh, mythological aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just, I don't know why no one really ever looked into it. Maybe there's other books I have not found yet, but every culture has dogs in the afterlife or dogs to do with either creation or, you know, the afterlife or just some kind of spiritual aspect to Mm -hmm. dogs, Um, especially Greece, uh, Egypt, and uh, Mm -hmm. ancient Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating. Just never thought yeah. I'd come across that.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you more specifically about some of that because that was something you mentioned towards the end of the talk that I saw. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing because it, it speaks to something that... I personally am interested in and find that a lot of the people that I'm talking to now who take a slightly different view on their dogs, where it's not just about having a pet, but actually seeing how the dog is your mirror. It becomes this opportunity for you to look at, like if you are having any kind of behavioral issues with the dog, for example, like instead of just looking at problematizing the dog or trying to eradicate particular behavior it's also asking us to question what role am i playing within that how am i contributing to this but even beyond that looking at the dog as really kind of a spiritual guide in many respects like what are they here to kind of catalyze for us in terms of how we look at ourselves and so it was interesting that you brought up that ancient cultures already had a bit of that relationship with them
1: yeah yeah uh it, no it's fascinating and it depending on which culture it's it's vastly different but my i guess scientific slash spiritual answer uh that's probably more scientific than i guess uh yeah. is just that like we are an animal that came you know we evolved just like everything else came from you know the trees into the savannah walked around um left africa into eurasia australia the americas and in that time, uh we went through the ice age like it, it we just were an animal that had to adapt to everything that was thrown at us, and we did very well um, and in that ice age past, like you know, we were butchering animals for their hides. we were building structures out of mammoth bones or wood or caves, and once agriculture came around, that all ended, and mm-hmm. like you're not know, gonna make your clothes out of fabric like cotton and uh, wool and things um mm-hmm. but. Yeah. Like that, that ice age past is gone. Like, except if you're a hunter gatherer in like South America somewhere or something or in Africa, um, that's all gone. So the closest thing that someone like me who was born in New York city, uh, like, you know, if I stayed there my whole life or say you, you lived in Shanghai or Hong Kong in a high rise apartment, you might never go outside into a forest like ever. Uh, but you still have a small domestic wolf with you that connects you to that. Like, really deep past of mm-hmm. us primates and canines like interacting on the tundra hunting reindeer. And a lot of people don't think of it like that, but like a chihuahua is still a subspecies of the wolf. Like it, it, it is a wolf. Um, yeah. And I just like looking at my dog who has some behavioral issues himself. It's like, he just, I see him more as an animal that I respect more than a a pet most days. He's just a, mm. he's a giant German shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: No, absolutely. I know I I like to joke my my dog Lucky is a chihuahua mix and I always refer to him as my little wolf.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Chihuahuas are unique
0: <laughs> in many respects. Yeah. In many respects. Yeah. I love that idea that that you talked about um regarding seeing your dog as like an animal that you respect that you are in a cohabitating relationship with Mm -hmm. challenging that idea of that we often have with pets of like I am dominating I am I'm the one in charge and and a lot of the kind of traditional training and I should say I'm not a trainer and I don't have any background in that but when I was first when I first got lucky he's my first dog as an adult and he came to me literally just sort of showed up um, where all of a sudden I just had to kind of learn how to, how to help him in this world. And so I was going on YouTube and looking at all of these different videos and what have you. And it was right when we were going into the pandemic. And so, and he was 12 weeks old at the time. So his kind of peak socialization window for being a puppy, he was just closeted away. So he has a ton of behavioral issues as a result of being frightened of everything new. Yeah. Um, when we first went out after we were allowed to kind of leave the house, he got attacked by a, a really rambunctious German oh, shepherd no. pup. So now anytime he sees a dog with that kind of profile, yeah, he's on alert. He's on alert. And I think that when I was looking for resources with how to support him, I felt very uncomfortable with a lot of the, the kind of approaches that are like, show him who's boss. Mm -hmm. You've got to kind of, you've got to get in there and show him like you're, you're the dominant one. You're the alpha, because that's still in the kind of zeitgeist. Um, But really switching to how can I have empathy for him and how can I, better manage myself and better manage the environments that I'm creating for him Mm
1: -hmm. yeah yeah I know it's a lot of people don't realize that as well like I'm glad like you brought it up because it's uh, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this it's just a lot of people just think oh dog and I'll get a book on a dog and like raise it and teach it the right way. And I mean I'm sure people do that with babies too. I, I don't have children, but there's a million parenting books out there. Um and now YouTubers and podcasts and stuff. But uh with dogs, like I grew up with a beagle mix. She was a Beagle Brittany Spaniel mix. Loud, couldn't sit, she wouldn't lay down, she didn't fetch or anything, like just did her thing. But very loving family dog. Um would run away a lot too because she's a beagle. Uh right. but um then we had a chocolate lab, sweetest dog ever. Again, she would not fetch no matter how much I taught her to. Um, but never she grit like bared her teeth at one dog at a dog park one time because it was just getting up in our space. But gentlest dog. Um, but my German Shepherd mix, he's a German Shepherd and Elkhound and Malamute mix. And wow. Very intelligent dog, uh even as a puppy, and he would sit, stay fetch like within a first three weeks or not three weeks of having him, but I got him at six weeks old he He caught on quick um but he is now a hundred pounds, and his mother was an elk hunter, and his breed that he's a Wyoming mountain dog is technically what he's called. uh mm-hmm. they use them for hunting moose and elk, and trying to implement those same, or just like in the way I grew up with those other two dogs and having my dog, it's a vastly different experience. And like, I can't just expect an elk hunting dog who's like bred for that to just be a docile suburban house dog. And it requires a lot of training. Um, And I think a lot of people don't think about that because German shepherds are gorgeous. I'd never had one before. Um, So smart and like, You just don't really think about how much especially if you have a malinois like how much energy they need or a border collie um and it's yeah i respect him to, to back to what i was saying there is like he's a pet and he's my best friend for sure and like my son in a lot of ways but at the same time like he is an animal that has his quirks um he's terrified of children he um hates fireworks he hates gunshots like just little yeah. things like that you have to learn about him that like he is an individual too, like an organism that lives and breathes and like has his own idiosyncrasies. So I have to like be cognizant of that. So if a kid's walking down the street while well, we are, I'll go to the other side because I know that will yeah. trigger him. And yeah, it's just whereas my Molly Lab would just run up to the kid and lick it. Like <laughs> it's just right. it's different. Yeah.
0: Right. It is true. I mean, dogs are very much individuals. And I think it's important for us to think of them that way and realize that it's not actually that we're anthropomorphizing them because I have, um, I've heard that be used as a bit of like an accusation for, oh, you're just sort of babying the dog. And, you know, why do you need to worry about that? But it's actually, for me, it it speaks to going even beyond dogs recognizing the individuality of every expression of life and realizing that it's for me anyways, my perspective is that it's it's our job to steward that Yeah. and be cognizant of what anything leads. It's like, you know, just because I've got two plants that are the same species doesn't mean that each one is going to do well with the same amount of water or the same amount of light or whatever, like, you've you've kind of got to tend to that and it's the same for dogs absolutely the same for dogs
1: yeah no for sure um especially like when i lived in brooklyn like seeing just how many like adopted not to get into like a pit bull thing but like adopted pit bull yeah. pups yeah. there are like it's it's a cultural thing like people there, yeah it's like the right thing to do is adopt shelter dogs but i also saw and not that this has to do with them being pit bulls this has to do with people being just not the best pet owners, <laughs> Um, like, would bring them to the dog park and be on their phone texting or talking to somebody while the dog is, like, running around, not biting another dog, but, like, roughhousing really hard, and then another dog would snap and it would turn into a fight. And, like, that's on um, when, say, I say, I don't know what that dog's history was, like, before it was brought to the shelter and adopted or whatever, but, like, you need to be aware of that Um, if you're going to let your dog loose at a dog park and, like, pay attention that's on the owner i think um absolutely and like whether that a pit bull a shepherd a beagle like whatever dog it is um like my dog for sure let's just say for example as a shepherd he has behaviors that like i can't just like i I, i'm I'm responsible for mitigating those behaviors and working around them and like if he just doesn't act like a dog at a dog park like every other dog then like that's on me exactly Um, yeah but i can't breed that out of him if that makes sense Right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think kind of along those lines as well, there's a, and and going back to the idea that there's this reflection process that happens with us and, and our dogs, I notice things like there is a tendency to say, if, if, I've had this happen to me where what my dog presents with certain behaviors, and the first thing that other people tell me to do is medicate him. Hmm. It's like just put him on like an antidepressant or or something like that. How? Strazitone so or
1: something? Yeah.
0: Totally, totally. Yeah. And even with um, kind of spaying and neutering, and I know that that's a really contentious topic, and there is no one right answer for for anyone. But especially when he was young and and showing some of these behaviors people were saying like well once you neuter him it's going to be fine like you just need to go and and kind of take care of that and for me it was this opportunity to kind of look at like does it make sense for me to remove a part of his body to try and control a behavior does it make sense for me to ask him to be and act a certain way through medication to make me and other people feel more comfortable and then that process of reflecting about him was like Oh my god! This is what we do to ourselves.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, I, I I have diagnosed ADHD, and it's one of those things where, like, the psychiatrist was explaining to me is like, back hundred and fifty years ago, three thousand years ago, you probably would have been fine. Uh, but just based on how like the world operates today with nine to fives and all that, like, right, like, medication will help you fit into that society better. Whereas mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need it. And um, a dog, same way. Like my dog gets terrified on the fourth of fireworks and he'll hide yeah. and claw under a chair, or like claw under the hardwood. And like I'll give him a trazodone that day because it's just for his, like I just hate seeing him struggle that right. hard with something that is man made and not his fault. Um, exactly. So in that case, I do it. But people who just give them, Tries it on every day just for anxiety like i don't know like i wouldn't want to do that to me
0: <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah,
1: yeah. but exactly. i mean you have to do it i respect it but
0: yeah yeah well it makes i want to come back to actually um what you were talking about with the mythologies as well yeah. and how that so you, you talked about like certain specific cultures ancient cultures that had this idea around dogs playing a specific role and i wonder if you could kind of elaborate on some of those examples and also how you see that impacting the way that we have our current mythologies around dogs
1: yeah um i mean we're english-speaking people so we kind of are in the like the western canon sort of mythologies they're probably more known to us but or to the audience listening, but. Cerberus, the three-headed dog in Greek mythology, like he keeps people. He's Hades' dog, and he keeps people in the underworld from getting out, or keeps people from getting into it to get to bring their loved ones back out. Um, I always thought that was fascinating. And also, there's the river Styx. Um, and in Aztec and Mayan mythology, there is also a river right before the underworld. Um, mm-hmm. And in Aztec mythology, or Mexica mythology, you have to. Uh, like, there's nine lands of the dead, and to get to the ninth land, which is Mictlan, the first one is the uh, the land of the dogs, it's called Itzquidlan, and mm-hmm. that is, like, you can only pass the first, like, not hell, the first, like, underworld to get to the ninth one if you have a dog there that will help you. So, whether that's your dog is, like, you know, depending on the family telling the story, but it's just, like, if you were kind to dogs, they would let you cross. Um, and there, I think in some iterations, there's like a dragon or a serpent in the river that will eat you, but it's scared of the dogs, which is why they need to help you. Um, or I think it's just that they help you swim. But in other stories, it's just that, you know, your dog, when you die, is waiting for you and it will take you through the nine lands of the dead. So you don't have to do it alone because they're very harrowing, scary journeys. Um, but that brings me to Egyptian mythology too. Uh, Anubis is one of the older gods in the pantheon. And it's debated, is he a jackal or a fox or a wolf? And uh, I talked about this in the lecture, but genetically, the, the jackals that live in Egypt are actually wolves. Um, so, like, they're just wolves. Dogs are just wolves anyway. So they just, the paper was saying, just think of Anubis as just an amalgamation of what a canid is. Um, right. And regardless, when you die, the first god that meets you is Anubis, and he takes your heart and puts it on a scale and judges it against, uh, it's called the Feather of Mott. I forget exactly what it does. I'm getting too into the weeds of this, but (laughs) long and short, he. when you die, you face the judgment of a dog, um, just like in Aztec mythology um, and in, I guess, Greek mythology to an extent. And Anubis is the god of the dead, whereas um, Osiris is the god of death. So the rest of the gods are kind of antagonistic towards humans, and like they just kind of like Zeus and all those other stories just mess with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but Anubis is like your friend, and he's like, hey, like you're dead. Here's what's going to happen. And right. that just seems so common in all of these religions. It's like the, the stepping stone into the next world is like a dog is there, so you're like, okay, I'm fine. Um, and that's just fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you had mentioned too, um, I can't remember which Native American tribe it was. I believe it was in the Southeast who actually saw dogs as inhabit the mythology saw dogs as in- inhabiting a kind of liminal space in between human and animal. They got kicked out of the animal kingdom. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it was the uh, the Seneca. They're uh, the Iroquoian up in uh, upstate New York in Canada. But they... Um... Yeah, in their creation story, it's like all the animals had the or not all the animals, but like when creation happened and humans were being made, the entities that our dogs had the chance to be, but because they're like gross and like you know lick each other and have sex way too often, uh, they were I think promiscuity was the word it used, but um, they weren't allowed to be human. Um, so humans then saw dogs as like. Not animals because they were shunned by the other animals, um, but they weren't human, but they're the closest thing I would say we have a lot more in common with dogs and chimps a lot of the times, um, and in terms of behaviors, not genetics really, but um, yeah, took pity on them, and it's our job to be their stewards, like to, to take care of them or their awards or whatever. And it's, yeah, it kind of goes, you said something earlier about that too, like it's our job to like understand these dogs and take care of them in a sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. I, I think stewardship is a, is a, a term that's coming up a lot, not just, I mean, I hear it quite a bit in terms of ecological stuff. How do we become stewards for the earth generally? But I think that same idea applies to how we engage with our dogs and it's, it's kind of nuanced because, for me anyways, implies they have an agency and we are just there to help support and guide them rather than forcing them to conform to Mm. our worldview, the way that we engage with the world.
1: Mm. Yeah, I like that you said agency too because I I remember writing a paper in grad school about how dogs have agency in the archaeological record and my teacher kind of like scoffed. Uh, And like, not that... You know, they have agency in the sense that a human child or a human does. But, like, when you're looking at archaeology, and especially in my line of work where we just do hunter-gatherer archaeology, all you have is stone left or some bone. to. And how do I tell what language they were? What was their gender? You cannot tell all that from a rock. Um, <laughs> but you can tell, okay, they were living in this camp in the spring. Uh, there are juvenile deer bones, so they were hunting smaller game. Um, they were butchering about this many of them based on the flakes and how the the stone was used. Um, I can tell that, but that is the that's ecological me archaeology. But then there's other archaeologists that will look at that and say like, yeah, but like what were the power dynamics? What was like the you know. How Maybe they just wanted to hunt that much more deer that year. It wasn't that they needed that much kind of thing. And then that stuff, you kind of have to let's get into all archaeological theory. But on top of that, too, if you find bones that are modified um, by canids, you can assume that either it was chewed on by a coyote or a wolf or just a stray dog. Um, you could do comparative analysis to see if like it matches dog teeth versus wolf teeth or whatever. But Either way, that dog chewed on that bone and brought it from the middle of the site to the outskirts of the site that we're digging. So that okay. is to me agency. Like a dog did that. Right. Um, and you can view that as, you know, flood water or wind can move artifacts too. So that's not agency, but uh, a human can pick up a bone and move it to their side of the site, so can a dog. Um mm-hmm. there's no evolutionary reason for why it moved from X to Y. It just mm-hmm. it just did. Uh that's a that's a long-winded answer to something, but um, yeah, I just I think dogs have agency, and when you look at movies, um, did you ever see I Am Legend with Will Smith? No, no. Um, it's like a post-apocalyptic movies. I think all the humans get like rabies or something. Uh, they're turned into vampire zombie like things. Anyway, the the main character is Will Smith, and he talks to a dog the whole movie, and it's a cinema cinematographic what's the word a a a writing uh answer to rather than will smith just talking in his head the whole movie or talking to a microphone or talking to himself he talks to a dog and the dog at one point runs into like a zombie den um and that furthers the plot because the dog made that choice to run into that den and like he finds like it's a whole long movie it's really sad but uh yeah, it's just things like that. Like I don't think people realize like how much dogs do have agency in our lives and they make um like okay, have to make life decisions around them. Um and like if a dog bites somebody, then like, you know, it's not that the dog consciously was like, I feel like biting a human today. Like it's not <laughs> it's not something they do, but it's a choice that dog made or an action that happened that now we have to correct or work around, or, you know, some people might just give the dog away. And that is, uh, it's agency. Sorry. I just went on the whole tangent with that. But No,
0: that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, I think it's funny, uh, as you're mentioning like Will Smith talking instead of in his head, like talking out loud to his dog. I mean, that's literally my day every day is I'm just constantly (laughs) talking to my dog and I'm convinced that he actually understands me.
1: Uh, do you like, do you bounce ideas off of him or do you just talk to him like as you're talking to him or just have conversation with him? Well,
0: a bit, a bit of all of that. So yeah. I, I, I follow, um, and actually I'm taking a, a class later this month with uh, a woman who's an uh, animal psychic and animal communicator. And one of the things that she has mentioned quite often is that, for example, like if you are going to be going away on vacation or something and you're not taking your dog with you, they start to sense like you might pull out the suitcase or mm-hmm. you know, the things that they've seen before that are indicators of you leaving. They see all this coming out and they start to get anxious. And she says that one of the things that you can do to help alleviate their anxiety is actually talk to them like they're humans and tell them, okay, I'm going to be going on this day and I'm going to be gone for however many days, you know, and you're going to be staying with, you know, Sally down the street that you know, or whatever, like just to kind of set the scene, like you're talking to a child. Mm -hmm. Or any other person, you know, and she said, they understand that. And part of how they understand it, it's not so much the words that you're using, but it's in part the tone. So you're, you're kind of giving this calming tone, but also generally when we're speaking about something, we are creating images in our minds. So we're visualizing, like we're going on this trip. And if I say to you like suitcase, uh-huh. Probably a, an image of a suitcase pops up into your, into your mind. and we are conveying that on some some might describe it like a telepathic, of level or an energetic level we're conveying that to the dog which they're picking up on and so there are these little tricks that you can be using around how you communicate with them to let them know about what's going on i mean i do it with with lucky even i did it this morning with him our routine was disrupted because we were going to go for um a walk beforehand And I decided, no, it's kind of, you know, kind of get close. So I said to him, we're not going to go for our walk before I'm going to be talking with David and you can sit with me if you want to. And then later on, we're going to see how the weather is and we'll go for a walk later. He has not displayed any of the normal kind of behaviors that he would do, not even necessarily in response to my behavior of getting ready for the walk, but kind of, he senses the time that we should be going. Yeah. You know? He has not displayed any of the behaviors of like wanting to go for the walk. Like we're going, it's like, he totally understands, okay, we're going later and whether or not that's me just choosing to believe that, but mm-hmm. looking at, there is a, a history that when I do that with him, he seems to be responding to me setting up the scenario for him.
1: Yeah, no, that was fascinating. Um, there's that, the same Iroquois story we were talking about earlier. they, well, I I won't say believed, but they I guess still believe in, in the modern Iroquois that live today. Um there's a form of magic that you get, and like magic in the sense like kind of like a karma that when you you love a dog, you get good magic. Um, and if you're mean to dogs, you you don't have good magic or whatever in it. Obviously the Aztecs felt that too, because it would that's why your dog if you're good to them, they'd help you in the afterlife. But um I do wonder, there is the scientific aspect of dogs to me that, like, as my baseline. They evolved, like I said, are wolves that are evolved to life among homo sapiens, just through and through. And Jan Goodall did all of that work with chimpanzees and other primatologists with gorillas and orangutans. Clearly very social, and it's like... If you want to look at human sociality objectively, just look at chimpanzees. Like, that's all it is. Like, a dude at a bar walking up to a girl to impress her, like, that's chimpanzees doing the same thing. Uh, like, territoriality displays, grooming, all like hanging out, cuddling. It's all chimpanzee stuff. Um, wolves saw that. And, like, they wolves have their own similar social systems where they can be nip at each other, but they can caress each other, they can groom each other just like primates. And, uh, wolves exploited that from humans to get, like, they won the evolutionary game. They don't have to hunt anymore. They don't have to exert any calories if they don't want to. We can even overfeed them to a, a problem. Um, and they, like, they they won in that sense. And, like, we take care of them. They don't have to do anything. But <laughs> along that, too, I, I saw a study where they had a human watch something, I don't remember what it was. I know they watched a horror movie. Um, and they collected sweat off their body um and gave it to the dog to smell. And the dog immediately got it tail between its legs backed into a corner and felt fear. Uh, when I don't remember what the the positive end of that spectrum was that they had them watch. Maybe it was Barney or something, but uh had them watch something Lassie. The, <laughs> Lassie, yeah. The <laughs> the good sweat on the humans that was happy, the dog started wagging its tail. Mm-hmm. Um and when you're telling me the thing about the the suitcase, because I know for a fact I travel a lot. My dog is with my parents right now in Nashville, not here in Wyoming. Um he knows like when I, I get my duffel bag out and start throwing stuff into it and I live in a converted bus. So he can he hears that bus, like the diesel engine, and like I know he's in a different mood because either he's going All in right. it with me or I'm leaving. Um And I do wonder because there's that vacation anxiety you always get, like when you're going on vacation or packing, like all the airport and you're stressing. What level does that stress, sweat hormone that's coming out of you, like, can they associate with, okay, he's about to leave? Um, Mm -hmm. That might be worth looking into. But Mm -hmm. also, on the, like you're saying with the telepathic level, it's just that, like, it might not even be telepathy. Dogs just are legitimately. Keen to understand human emotion and what they're feeling and expressing, because that's how they survive. Um, right, and it's yeah, I think it's on all levels. It's whether you want to call that magic, like the Iroquois did, or the telepathy, or just sweat and hormones. Like I don't absolutely, I don't know. That's absolutely. All
0: there. Well, there are some theories too that dogs. Well, well, we know this for for a fact that dogs have the largest heart per body mass of any animal and the heart being yeah. And the heart being actually magnetic as well as electric and they are drawn to certain things in in that way where like, like magnets pulling, um, things towards them, that they become drawn to us, they become drawn to our emotions. They're always trying to release a charge and ground a charge um, within them, usually an emotional charge. And Kevin Behan, who was a a dog trainer who passed away a, a few years ago, but he's he's somebody who wrote um, the book, Your Dog is Your Mirror. Okay. And he really went into a lot of exploration. His father, I, I might mess this story up, so I apologize if the details aren't totally correct, but his father, I think, was the first dog trainer to train like police dogs in the U.S., And, you know, working at that kind of level for various police departments. And so Kevin grew up in the environment of seeing his dad doing this training, but very much coming from the dogs as thinking beings, and you work with them via changing their thinking. And he started to question that as he went into dog training and actually started looking at how dogs are really emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. And they are drawn to various emotions. And like you're saying, whether or not it's because we're emitting a kind of chemical response to the emotions that we're feeling, or if there is a kind of magnetic electromagnetic charge that they are sensing, um, it could, I mean, it could be all of it, it could be none of it, I'm not totally sure, but I feel like there is something that they are picking up on and they are, are drawn to. And like you're saying, they have learned how to exist in in our environments incredibly well
1: yeah i'm trying to i couldn't really think of an answer that quickly to that question but i mean that's just cool can you elaborate on the like the the emotional aspect of that i think that's an interesting way to look at it. yeah
0: yeah so in some respects and again i preface this with like i am not a trainer so I don't know what I'm talking about in that regard, but in terms of looking at the, the emotions, you see a little bit in, um, from what I have witnessed as an outsider, looking at modern day dog training techniques that are, they're evolving from say, for example, counter conditioning work mm-hmm. where your dog is triggered by something. And then you you're working to expose them to the trigger, but have them experience a different remos- emotional response. So the idea is that you're working with the emotion they're feeling versus the behavior you're displaying. So you change the emotion and the behavior will change as a result of that versus trying to correct a behavior. And there's a lot of work that's being done right now, actually, in terms of trauma with dogs and how trauma work that we do with humans Mm -hmm. is informing the way that we are working with dogs who have been traumatized and vice versa there's this kind of feedback loop that understanding the the way that trauma operates in the body. And so there's a relationship between the emotion and actually like a stored emotion in the body. So we as humans will do it where we might end up having like, I don't know, like bad hips or bad knees or like constant like tension in the shoulders or what have you that comes from not like we've overworked it from exercise necessarily, but like, maybe we're more hunched over because we're in a constant state of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so then the body traps the emotion. Dogs do the same thing. And so that's where various techniques, like say acupuncture or acupressure, acupressure, reflexology, that kind of stuff, even Reiki works to help release the emotions that Mm -hmm. are causing the physical problem. So it's kind of like this notion of getting to the root of actually what's creating the problem that you want to change.
1: Yeah, no, that is... That's fascinating because I mean I've been in therapy for years and it's like, yeah, you have behaviors that you do. I never thought about that, that are definitely influenced by childhood things or yeah. emotions you're feeling that you haven't processed. Yeah. Um, my therapist had me read a book called Scattered. Um, it's by Gabor Mott. He's a he has ADHD himself, but he um, his mother apparently went through the Holocaust. Um, but he. I think he was born right around then and moved to America after, but grew up with a lot of childhood trauma and like, you know, playing his, um, asylum, uh, and just in his household, it was kind of chaotic, uh, just like the, how the family interactions were. And there's a debate as if ADHD is genetic, um, or if it's environmental or if it's trauma and his theory is, I don't know if I a hundred percent buy it, but it's compelling is that like it when it if I were to say something that was and if I were to start acting erratically with you right now, like you either have the option to respond and like reflect or like respond or react to it, to just to hit mute and walk away, or just sit in it and kind of dissociate. And his idea is that ADHD is an adaptation for children who are in situations where if the mother's yelling or the child the brother's yelling, um, my brother's like severely autistic, uh, checks out for me. Like, oh, I didn't know what to do because I had to hold my mom's hand, but like I couldn't run. I couldn't like do anything. But my brother's having a meltdown. So I kind of just had to go into thinking about Lord of the Rings in my head or something. Exactly. Um, and that perpetuates. And when you're saying that about dogs, like your dog grows, my childhood dog was in that same environment with me. Yeah. Um, that is really cool. I didn't think about yeah. that. And especially as, I mean, obviously if people, probably happens way more than we think like hit their dogs and stuff like it's same yeah. thing like they, it's an emotional response
0: it, it totally is and i also yeah. think that kind of broadening our understanding of what constitutes trauma is important because i was actually talking to a friend of mine who had been experiencing panic attacks and went to her doctor about it and her doctor asked her have you experienced any kind of trauma And before she answered, she was going to say no, because she's like, well, nothing, I don't think anything really bad happened to me. But before she responded, she actually asked him, what do you mean by that? And I think that was really important to open up that trauma is just really anything that we view as a threat. So right. it doesn't have to be like you were severely beaten or, um, experience any kind of, you know, what we would see as like really extreme. It it happens on like small little levels and it's often the accumulation of it that then results in, um, something where we become overwhelmed a little bit like you hit a certain threshold and then all of a sudden the cam, the straw that breaks the camel's back, all- you have a huge reaction to it, but mm-hmm. it's not that specific thing. It's the the accumulation. And I've noticed, um i sort of equate that for myself with trigger sacking with dogs and lucky is is highly reactive so i know that if he's had a morning where he's been exposed to like the stray dogs are running down the street of you know by the fence and that's activated him and um there's been like some loud noise and that activates him and he's getting all worked up i know that unless i deal with with that when we then go on the walk anything will set him up because it's not that thing he's encountering on the walk. It's, he's had all of these things happen. And then that's the one thing that makes him go ballistic. And it's just, yeah. for me, I'm convinced it's the same with people. It's totally the same with people.
1: Uh, makes total sense. Um, yeah. Cause some people can, I think he used the example in a book of like a, a red light that makes someone late to work. Like for someone like me who like it's late to a lot of things It it's fine like I'm like all right I'm just gonna be 10 minutes late I'll get there but some people if their life is like a constant stress of the, like a red light he said one of his patients just it set her off and she like had a mental breakdown and yeah like just something so minute um and yeah I I just didn't think about it like humans dogs are adapted to to mirror and reflect human thought and emotion so that Makes a lot of sense. I never really thought of it like that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. dog therapy. So yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> but it's but it. I think like we help our dogs by working on ourselves.
1: One hundred percent. Yeah.
0: You know, and there there is that feedback loop, and the, and the more that you do like what I refer to as like shadow work, where you're looking at the things that are emotionally triggering you. And instead of just shoving it back down, you're actually questioning it and asking like, where is this coming from? And how is this serving me? And what can I do to change my perspective on this or release it or any of that kind of stuff that inevitably has an impact on our dog's behavior.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like go right. Mm, my anxiety when I was younger, like I had pretty bad social anxiety and then getting my current dog. uh, He's just so pretty. And of course, like a puppy, that's really pretty. Everyone wants to come talk to him. I would get scared of people like wanting to come talk to me. Um, But like the dog is kind of a shield in that sense. And it was just like, it's a barrier. Then they can ask you questions about the dog, not about you. So it was a little more like, I can see why people that have like severe, severe that need a support dog like how that is completely beneficial and I'm, I'm on board for it. Um And also like when I'm in the woods with my dog, that's something I like, if I had to preach a religion, it would be like being alone in the woods with a dog. It's like, it's an experience. Uh He can sense my anxiety. Like when I hear something and I'm like, Oh crap, is that a bear? Cause I'm in Wyoming and bears are coming out now. It's mm-hmm. like, he'll stop and look too. And then like when he's fine, I'm fine. Um And and I would think too this it gets away from the, the trauma aspect, but like as a primate, we're adapted to stereoscopic vision and parallax eyes or you know, climbing through trees and now we can use that to to throw objects and projectiles. Um I can see and scan the environment. Especially a forested one for a bear or a moose. I'm terrified of moose. Uh, and like look for <laughs> rightly so
0: they're pretty big. <laughs>
1: they're terrifying. Um and the, yeah, you get there's more injuries from moose than like wolves and bears. Uh
0: wow.
1: But yeah, they're they're aggressive. The um I can see them before he does. Uh, but and I I can look and see like when's he gonna do it. But if the wind's blowing away, because again back to that ice age analogy I was saying. That's something that's in us that like I we can't smell as well as other animals can for sure. Primates don't have wet noses anymore, or at least old world primates. Um so I can't smell what he does, but I can see before I see something sometimes on the wind, he can smell it before I see it. And Mm -hmm. it's this extra set of senses that is walking next to you that Mm -hmm. is fascinating to me. And like Mm -hmm. when it's really quiet and there's no sounds, like him and I will just look around. And it, I can tell he's sniffing or like waiting to catch something or hear something, and I'm waiting to see something, and it's a really cool thing that I don't think people get to experience anymore that is what dogs are for, yeah, um, yeah, and yeah,, uh, but when that anxiety is on the street, like when I'm walking with my dog or like a kid comes close to wants to pet the dog, like my aisle tense up, which then makes my dog tense up, which doesn't make the situation any any better. Um yeah. But I have found with the do not pet vest, um, and sometimes I'll put a muzzle on them too, just in case, uh, like when you put a muzzle on a dog, it it just commands respect, (laughs) which is I I found interesting. I I don't think in the best ways, because people are like, oh, that dog's vicious, but I do it for him just so he's more comfortable. Exactly. I just kind of feel not like a badass, but it's just like, I really don't have to worry about somebody coming up and robbing me, (laughs) you know, when I have that. Yeah yeah
0: but there's also that it it helps relieve anxiety knowing like he's not going to be able to bite a kid if a kid just sort of like shows up out of nowhere and is thousand you know
1: yeah a kid ran up on us uh i went to the women's watch with my mom (laughs) a couple years ago and um yeah i had my dog with me and a kid like i had he wanted to pet the dog i let him pet the dog earlier in the day it was fine uh even let him feed him like the kid's face but then later on the kid I want. I don't want to say snuck up. I just didn't hear him or see him, and neither did the dog stepped on his tail to come pet uh-huh. him, and yeah. he didn't bite the kid, but he whipped around to see what it was, and like his his tooth hit his forehead, so there was a little bit of blood, but no bite or anything. And I I felt so bad, and I told the dad like, hey, like, do you, do you want my card or like, what what are we gonna do here? Do you need the police? And he just was like, nope, that, that's my bad. I was not watching my kid, and he ran up on a, a German Shepherd, and I was wow. like. I was really responsible um I I just felt terrible but because of that situation which I do believe was an accident there was no way like my dog wanted to do that he just whipped Mm -hmm. around um like I'm fearful of him around kids which then makes him more fearful around kids and I've worked with a trainer around kids to his kid like you know just helped my dog get a little better at it so there's behavioral corrections and things there but with positive um reinforcement and whatnot but Yeah, I can see I don't really have access to a lot of children. I guess my friends are all having babies now, but they're like infants. Um, I can't really just, hey, can I let my dog practice around your kid? It's just a weird thing. Uh, (laughs) But I I know what the triggers are, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, too, like what, what you we're sort of alluding to like in terms of intent of the dog. I think that's also something that's important for us to recognize as pet parents is it's our job. And we were saying this a bit earlier, but it's our job to mitigate the environment that we put our dogs in. And most dogs are acting from a place of instinct. And I would argue that instinct actually is that emotional thing of oh my gosh, something's just happened to my body or, oh my gosh, there's something that I'm afraid of and I've got a past experience with. And even from an epigenetic perspective, it might not be that that dog had a specific interaction, but it could be something's been passed down. I mean, they've shown that um, if a pregnant bitch experiences stress during pregnancy, that's often um, a kind of catalyst for the pups to be yeah. really fearful and have high anxiety because it got high cortisol levels, et cetera. So it's not necessarily that the pup has had a particular experience it's that the mom had a particular experience and that got passed down. So it's, it's being aware that it's our job to create the best environment possible because the dog is acting from that emotional space. It's not thinking I want to go and do harm necessarily. You know, it's. yeah.
1: That is so fascinating because that is part of what he talks about in the book too. Like the whether it's genetic and environmental factors can bring out ADHD or it right. is something epigenetic that um, especially his mother going through what she went through, like that passes down to the child yeah, um, and it's not yeah. anything the child, you know, had, it wasn't a traumatic event. The child faced, it was a traumatic event. The child faced as a fetus. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that makes total sense for dogs. Huh.
0: And they've shown that there's I think it's it's Bruce Lipton who has Dr. Bruce Lipton who's done um, research around this uh, on epigenetics and various things that are I mean there are a lot of people that are doing it, but the the specific mm-hmm. example that I'm thinking of is how things are passed down that even like if your ancestor experienced famine for, for example, there will now be a genetic marker on the dna that gets passed down several generations so it's not even necessarily that you experienced it in utero but like your great 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 -great grandparents might have experienced it and so the way that you experience it in your current day will not necessarily show up in that exact same uh manner of like oh there's there's famine and you know, right here, but it's like, maybe that, maybe that translates into kind of like a poverty mentality or a whole, a neat feeling like you need to hoard stuff because you might not have things or it can or show overeating
1: up in, or something. Yeah,
0: exactly. It can show up in different yeah. ways, but that there's this argument that it's been passed down. It happened in a previous generation that changed the DNA and therefore gets passed down. And that kind of correlates with what a lot of spiritual traditions talk about too. And I would say, um i'm not i don't want to appropriate karma but this sure. the way that we often understand karma in terms of things some, something being passed down like something happened in the past that is creating an experience for you in the present from that perspective of the of the notion of karma i think there's a similar kind of thing that is at play as with epigenetics, that there is something that we are experiencing that is not necessarily directly related to our particular circumstances, but comes from elsewhere. And we are now processing it with the lens that we've got here. And this is where people talk about shadow work and ancestral healing, that kind of stuff of that you can heal that experience for yourself in this present moment. Yeah. And it's, it's essentially healing all of the, the past the past experiences for people
1: have you read it it didn't start with you
0: no i've uh, not
1: it's it's literally just all what you just said that's how how i learned about that um yeah it's a it's a book on that but yeah like um not wrote it, it? Used, i can't remember the name um but yeah it didn't it didn't start or it didn't begin with you but it's about epigenetic
0: okay
1: passed on trauma and uh like not saying my family is like the biggest poster for that at all it's just like we left uh i guess what is now ukraine um a hundred or so years ago when the russians first invaded uh and they were like the pogroms and stuff so my family i think eastern european jews moved here um and then some a fourth generation immigrant and like there's clearly like anxiety passed down (laughs) through all of like my family yeah um and it the book just showcases that specifically but like you know in, in black communities or other white communities or korean communities like how that gets passed down because you hear about history and stuff and you're like, Oh wow, that must've been harrowing. But like, you don't realize like that is in coach. So something that happened to your grandmother, um, your mother was a cell in your grandmother at some point. So it still passes to you. So something your grandmother experienced in utero right. or your mother experienced in utero can yeah, affect you. And I, I just didn't know that, but um, my mind's kind of blown applying that to dogs now because it, I mean, you you can't not. Where there are also mammals that have psychology. <laughs> so Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and I cool. also
0: think that there's like there's real truth to kind of the collective conscious consciousness that we are experiencing where, for example, when there's a the threat of war, when there's um right economic um collapse when there is climate catastrophe all of that even if you're not experiencing it in your locale necessarily i would argue we all are but like you are picking up on it it's like when you you just feel a vibe you feel like there's something in the air like we have a lot of um kind of terms that we use to sort of describe this ineffable thing that we're picking up on we just makes can't sense. quite the sixth sense exactly yeah. and that we are taking that in and that is impacting, even from a kind of very basic level, it's then impacting your mood and is impacting then ha- what kind of behaviors you start to show as a result of the way that you're feeling. And like things like um, even cognitive behavioral therapy refer to this, where it, there's that relationship between what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and th- and then what you end up doing. And so in order to change that, you just change one of those things and it will impact yeah. all of the others. But I I think, bringing it back to dogs, dogs are living in the same environment. Mm -hmm. They're totally living in the same environment. So when there's that kind of collective fear around something, it's not even necessarily in their particular household, in their particular town. It's just like the kind of zeitgeist that's going on at the moment that they are picking up on. And so that might be why they're behaving in a particular way or the the way that they're responding to something.
1: Yeah. No, that's... cool. i know like during quarantine and co i lived alone with my dog for like all of 2020 and 2021 and yeah like i was stressed and gained weight and like my dog for sure did because like i wasn't (laughs) taking him out and like walking him as much but right um it was also hot it was the summer yeah but um in georgia and he's a long-haired shepherd so i just felt too bad during the day but um yeah like they literally just Become their owners, (laughs) yeah. In a sense, yeah. He's good now. Absolutely,
0: absolutely, and vice versa. So I guess along those lines, um, I'd be curious to ask you, what do you feel like your dog has taught you about what it means to be human?
1: Wow, that's a. I usually ask that question. I didn't really have an answer. Uh, (laughs) Let me think. Let me think. Mm. I mean, at the base level, just that. That symbiosis between a, a human and a wolf is, it's real. Like the, um, like I I know you can sign language with a chimp and they can say like I had a professor with, that raised an orangutan, and it signed uh, tomato toothpaste, uh, and she couldn't understand like what it was trying to say. His name was Chantec, and it so it was signing tomato and toothpaste, uh, and it wanted ketchup, but the orangutan put those abstract ideas together and, and spoke which is just whoa uh but a a dog can't necessarily do that I know there's like bunny the dog with the little buttons that talks and stuff but yeah um it's just, without just sign language and like syntax and and um what would be the word semiotics with a dog I can understand what he's thinking sometimes um and like I can tell when he's anxious I can tell like sometimes he wants to be pet and like loved on sometimes he absolutely doesn't and that is exactly something I do (laughs) um and like just I I can't really put words to it it's just like there's a communication with an animal and like we are still connected to this we're not above zoology like we're, we're still connected to dogs in that sense like we're we're zoological entities that have way too much brain capacity that we forget about that, I think is the the thing. And like there's still on some level like a way like we communicate with dogs. I don't want to say like telepathically, but I, I know exactly what you, you mean by that. Like it just he's taught me that. Uh it definitely taught me patience um and respect for animals because like I said he's not like any other dog I've had. Um He's, a, he's truly an individual that, like, I have to work around and it's my responsibility to take care of him. Um, and, yeah, just learning about, like, for what I do with dog archaeology and anthropology, just having my, if I read something about, you know, how natives on the plains used dogs or how people in Siberia or aboriginals in Australia used uh, their original dogs, like I can you look at my dog and think about those situations with him like as a as a proxy um it's nowhere near the same like when I lived in augusta georgia I can't really fathom being an aboriginal in the middle of australia with a dingo but um it just at least I have I have a dog to like something to think about with it if I, if all that makes sense
0: yeah um, you got yeah. a frame of reference
1: yeah and it yeah, just yeah. I learn from him every day, especially that thing in the woods. Like, it's just, that's something that I think you have to experience to be like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Amazing. What about Um, you? Good question. Throwing it back. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the biggest things that lucky continues to teach me is presence. Okay. And in terms of, what it means to be human, really recognizing that our job is to be stewards. We're here to be stewards. And in order to understand that and and what that means in terms of kind of the practical actions, it's, it's really being present. How present can I be? That's where all of the power is. And it's also a really great reminder for me when I tend to get frustrated or I can get sort of sidetracked by all of my different thoughts. And in fact, I came across, I believe it was an Eckhart Tolle quote recently that talked about um, thoughts are basically the interrupters of presence that you know, you know, you're not present when you are wrapped up, in your thoughts and so using that as a constant reminder and dogs in general are just massively present everything is present for them and i i really do think that that's just been such a reminder for me is when i notice when i'm kind of going off on one he forces me to come back and just be present and be a witness and and i think that touches on a bit of what wow. I imagine your experience in the the woods with your dog is that you are keenly present of everything that's going on around mm-hmm. you in those kinds of moments.
1: Yeah. And I, I specifically go there to like ground, like to just yeah. unplug and just be in touch with myself and like it, like <laughs> I, it, it works. Um, and yeah, he, he does kind of center me in that sense. Like even when we're not in the woods, like just, uh, like mornings where you know you you hit the snooze button like three times and you're like I don't want to work today, he will come up and it's the time of morning where he wants to eat and sometimes he'll even give me like an extra snooze. He won't bother me, uh, but he'll come in and then he'll put his face on my bed and then start pawing and then going like until like I get up and again agency one and then two, it. It brings you back like out of your head and like, all right, I have to, especially during COVID, it was like some days, like when I didn't have work cause it was remote work and like, what was I going to do that day? Like, it's a reason to, to get out of bed. Like you, I got to feed the dog. I got to, you know, we got to take him for a walk. Got to do all that. Like it, I can see why for people that really need emotional support animals, like how that is a, just a constant grounding mechanism. Yeah. Things. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm glad you yeah. experienced that too.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's even more and more needed in the crazy world that we live in. Because like you're saying, I don't don't think that it's just that ADHD is a response and an adaptation to what's going on. I think all of us are experiencing some form of needing to adapt to an environment that is completely not natural for
1: us. Absolutely, yeah. And everything that goes along with that um, mm-hmm. and then with what you're saying about dogs, too, like there's still wolves adapting to a homo sapien life, so they have to adapt with us with through all that
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and it it is really interesting. I've heard so many stories about like you know, those covid babies and COVID dogs, like or I got a covid puppy, how there's so much behavioral issues because of that, yeah, um, I also saw something the other day that um babies that were born like went through like either from were born or toddlers during COVID have, um, an increased chance to, I don't, I don't want to say this is hundred percent true. It was just something I read. Um, but like an increased chance for autism or like yeah. inabilities to read people's faces because of all the mask wearing and things, um, which I never really thought about, but that makes sense. Cause everything like dogs are even evolved to understand our facial cues and things like that. So dogs too, I wonder how much uh you know especially a, a puppy that needs to learn all those social cues very quickly if we're wearing masks in public like how are they going to read you around other people yeah um yeah. i mean not saying not to wear the mask but it's just like it just as a fact that happened
0: yeah, yeah. it impacts it definitely yeah. impacts yeah yeah absolutely,
1: absolutely. interesting absolutely. stuff
0: yeah this has been such a great conversation thank you so much
1: yeah no absolutely
0: Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this episode with my very special guest, David Ian Howe. Like I said, we continue the conversation in episode three, where we take more of a personal tack, sharing some candid struggles, including the courage of career pivots, shadow work and crossroads moments, as well as a more nuanced understanding of trauma when it comes to ourselves and our dogs. We also reflect on how learning to show up and be yourself is the best medicine we can offer the world. You can find out more about David and his work on his website, davideinhow.com, as well as his Instagram account, EthnoSynology. I've included these links in the show notes too. Please don't forget to like and subscribe and come on over to Instagram and let me know what your biggest takeaways from today's episode were. I'd love to hear you can connect with me again at Mystic Dog Mama. All right, we'll see you next time.